0: Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Now if you would, please take out the Word of God that you have. It may be a printed one, it may be an electronic one, and turn in it to the second book in the Bible, the book of Exodus, and chapter number 3. Number of years ago, there was a fascinating survey done by Dr. Hugh Moorhead, who is a philosophy professor at Northeastern Illinois University. And what Dr. Moorhead did is he wrote to 250 famous philosophers, scientists, and intellectuals, and he asked them a very simple question: What is the meaning of life? And then he asked them to write back. Well, some offered their best guesses at the answer to that question. Others admitted that they just really made up a response. Uh, Still others admitted that they were frankly clueless at how to answer that question. And yet also, interestingly enough, several of the intellectuals asked Moorhead to write them back after he'd garnered all that information and tell them if he had discovered the purpose of life. What is the meaning of life? No doubt that is a question that everyone asks at some point in their life and they wrestle with it. But I do want to say this that the answer to that question is not found in speculation, it is rather found in revelation. It's not the meaning of life, a place where we might go or a practice that we do. It is found in a person. It's not a what, it is a who. And the answer to the meaning of life is really the person of Jesus. Now, we are beginning today a new series we have entitled, I Am. And in this series, we're going to be unpacking and understanding who Jesus really is. And we're going to be looking at some of the I Am statements that Jesus makes in the Gospel of John. I'm very excited to be doing this. This is going to be of immense value to us. It's a value not only in this life that we live now, but it has value into and through all of eternity. And I think as we look at these I am statements of Jesus, we're going to get some insight into how we can meet the deepest needs of our soul. So our plan today is to basically do two things. Number one, we're going to look at some historical background. We're going to take a look at a profound name of God that stands as the background to everything that Jesus has to say. And then secondly, we're going to look at his colossal claim number one, the first I am statement as we begin to unpack who Jesus really is. It's very simple. You ready to go on the trip with me? Let's begin by looking at some historical background. and We've gone to Exodus chapter 3 in order to get that background. And as you turn to Exodus chapter 3, it's important to understand that the key character here is the character of Moses. Just to remind you, the people of Israel have for four centuries been in pagan Egypt, and for most of that time, they have been in slavery to the Egyptians. And you might remember that in God's providence, Moses was raised as a prince in the house of Pharaoh. And after he had grown up, in one particular day, knowing his Hebrew background, he saw an Egyptian who was mistreating a Hebrew. And he looked around, he looked to his left, he looked to his right, didn't think anyone was watching, and he actually killed the Egyptian. And then he buried his body in the sand. And he didn't think anyone saw it. But... Somebody did witness it, and the word had gotten around the Hebrew community, and so Moses flees as a fugitive into the desert, and he spends 40 years in the desert. And so that brings us to chapter 3 and verse 1. So Moses has been for these 40 years in the desert, and he's pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, who was a herdsman who had a lot of wealth. And he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness, and he came to Mount Horeb. And the angel of the Lord appears to Moses in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush, of all things. And Moses looked, and he, behold, he noticed the bush was burning with fire, and yet the bush was not consumed." And uh, basically, he wants to to go check this thing out. Notice in verse 3, he says, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not being burned up. In other words, I got to go check this out. I've never seen anything like this. We have a lot of fires going on in the United States right now. When things burn, they burn up. Here you have a bush that is burning, and it doesn't get consumed. He goes, I'm checking this out more closely. And if you remember the story, as he walks closer to the bush... God speaks to him and he says, Moses, I am going to send you to Pharaoh. Remember, the most powerful man on the planet at the time. And you're going to go to Pharaoh, even though you've been this fugitive in the desert for 40 years, and you are going to demand that Pharaoh release all the slaves of Israel. Well, you just get a little feel for this. And so in verse 11, Moses' response to all of that is, who am I? I mean, of all the people you might call, who am I? And he begins what is really a series of excuses as to why he can't do this. It continues through chapter 3 and even down into chapter 4. Kind of fascinating if you want to go back and read it. Well, basically, when he says, who am I, God's response is verse 12. He says, certainly I will be with you. Now, that phrase, men and women, I will be with you is a key secret of how to live life. I will be with you. He followed on down to, into verse 13. He goes, okay, now if I'm if I'm going to go back and talk to these guys, now we've been four centuries in pagan Egypt. If if the people of, he, of the Hebrew nation ask me, What is your name? What am I supposed to say? And that leads us to verse 14, which is actually the verse. I wanted to look at. God says to Moses, you want to know my name? Here's my name. I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now, if you take the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, and you look there at verse 14, that little phrase, I am is two words it's the words ego a me e g o e i m i ego a me i am what's your name i just am i am the creator god i am the eternal one Notice what he says at the end of verse 15. He says, this is my name forever, and this is my memorial name to all generations. I am who I am. It just comes out of the, the verb be, and they, they do a lot of little tur- twists and turns with this verb to be. Uh, this is actually the word in the original language, Yahweh, a- and uh, the, the scribes became fearful because they didn't want to misuse the name of Yahweh. It was so sacred. So when they were going to read it out loud, they took the vowels from another word for God, the word Adonai, often translated Lord, and they moved the vowels from that word over to this word, which is part of what gives us the pronunciation you've heard, Jehovah. It's really Yahweh with the vowels from Adonai. The point of all this is that everyone knew in the Hebrew community that God was, I am. He was the sovereign creator God. And the idea is that wherever you go, whatever you have to face, whether it was Moses or the nation of Israel or even us today, the promise from God was, I am. Now, turn with me to the New Testament, to the gospel of John. We're going to go to chapter number six. And when you come to the New Testament in the Gospel of John, Jesus, some 26 times in the Gospel of John, has this phrase, a go, a me, I am. And what Jesus does is he decides that I am going to explain further who God is. John chapter 1, verse 18, tells us he was coming to do that. And what he does is not only does he use the phrase, ego, a me, I am, but he begins to fill in the blank. He begins to give us a further description of what I am really means. Now that's just the historical background. We need to have that in our minds as we move to these I am statements of Jesus. And we want to look at the very first one, his first colossal claim, and we see it In several verses in John 6. Notice verse 35. Jesus said to them, Ego ami. Now that would get everybody's attention. He says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, he who believes in me will never thirst. Look at verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Look at verse 48. I am a -a go-a-me, the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. Remember, after they come out of Egypt, they're in the wilderness, and God provided this manna for them. He says, way back then, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. The bread I'm talking about now, this is the bread which comes down of heaven in that one may eat of it and not die. I am a go Amy, the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So the first I am statement we're gonna look at from Jesus is ego, a me. I am, and he expands on what that means, the bread of life. Now, just prior to Jesus talking about being the bread of life, the fourth miracle that John records of Jesus had happened, and it was the feeding of the 5,000 men. You remember that event We're not exactly sure how many people were actually there. It was 5,000 men, not counting women and children. So in my mind, there had to have been at least 10,000 people there, maybe 12,000 people. And any time you've got thousands of people and you're feeding them, it's quite a scene. You know, for several years, we've gone to the Shepherds Conference in Colorado, or rather, California. I know it's not Colorado, it's California, California in the Los Angeles area, and we have about 3,000 men that come to that. And uh, one of the things that they do at the Shepherds Conference is they go and they find all of these uh, catering trucks from all over Los Angeles, and they bring them all in, and they park them in part of their back parking lot, and they go all the way around in kind of a U-shaped form, and you have an opportunity as hundreds and hundreds of guys are gathered around to to pick a particular catering truck, and you're going to eat from that catering truck. Now, that's just 3,000 guys. I don't know how many, if it was 12,000, how many catering trucks would you have to have? Well, it's, it's quite an ordeal is the point. And yet Jesus doesn't bring any catering truck in. He rather takes five, remember the story, five small barley loaves and two small fish, and he multiplies them, and he feeds this 10, 12,000 people group. And then there are so many leftovers that they fill multiple large baskets with them. What, what was really the, the lesson behind all of that miracle? Well, part of it reflected on who Christ was. But part of it is that Jesus wanted to emphasize that earthly bread is temporary. In fact, just before he makes this statement, you have the same group of people whose stomachs are now grumbling the next day, and they're looking for Jesus. Hey, can we get back to all the catering trucks? You know, can you feed all of us again? We're a little bit hungry. But the purpose of this primarily was to point to the need for spiritual bread something that would satisfy the heart and soul, something that would meet the deepest need that a human being has. And so that's the first thing we learn from Jesus' statement, I am the bread of life, and that is that Jesus is the one who satisfies. You know, as human beings, it was true way back in the Old Testament era, in the New Testament era, every era since and our era today. As human beings, we tend to look everywhere for answers or the things that satisfy, except from looking to God. It reminds me of the grandest life experiment ever tried in a search for meaning. I love this grand life experiment because it speaks to where we are as a culture. There's a lot of lessons for us even today, and there will be lessons even 20 years from today. When I talk about the grandest life experiment that was ever done, it was done by one of the kings of Israel by the name of Solomon. You remember Solomon? And Solomon got an offer from God that nobody else has ever received. And that is that God came to Solomon and said, whatever you want, ask for it and I'll give it to you. Can you imagine God doing that with you or with me? Hey, Bruce. Whatever you want, just ask for it, and you got it. But that's the offer that he gave to Solomon. And what does Solomon ask for? He asks God for wisdom and for insight. And God gave him that. But he decided to do this grand life experiment in his very early years, and really try to mine out what is the meaning of life. Where can you find true happiness? Where do you find lasting satisfaction that just satisfies you deep in your soul? So he conducts this grand life experiment. Now, I want you to know that he had resources we don't have. For example, he had no intelligence limits. I guarantee you, you may not know me well, but I will tell you up front that if I were going to conduct a grand life experiment, I would have intelligence limits. He had none of those. He not only had no intelligence limits, he had no financial limits. He was the richest person who ever lived. We oftentimes hear about the people who are the richest people in the United States, the richest people in the world. Nobody like Solomon, richest person who ever lived on the planet. He had no intelligence limits, he had no financial limits, and he had no authority limits. He was the king. And at this point, Israel was a very powerful nation. And so he said, I'm going to do this experiment. I'm really just going to take all these resources, and I'm going to just figure this out. What brings lasting satisfaction? And so the first thing he tackled is the idea of pleasure, he said, I'm going to see if I can just get enough pleasure that it really satisfies my heart. So he went after fun. He went after good times. He went after laughs. And I'm not going to tell you everything that he did, but, but he was, I like to call him the original party on, dude, guy. And, and, and what he did is, this is amazing to me, is that every single day he had a party for 30,000 people. Anybody had a party for 30,000? No. Are you kidding me? Every day they had a party for 30,000 people, and they had gourmet, gourmet food. They had the best of the wines. And this went on for years. Party, 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 party. No one ever partied like he partied. And he said, at the end of that, as he reflected back on it, he said, you know what? This frankly kind of left me empty. It was a little bit like trying to find satisfaction by chasing after the wind. I always loved that phrase. You know, we live in a very windy state. Sometimes you really just need to go outside and try to picture what it would be like to chase the wind down. Totally futile, right? Second thing he decided to do in this grand life experiment is he said, well, it must be found in achievement. If you can, if you can make the right kinds of achievements... You know, then, oh yeah, then you're going to feel it in your soul. And so he spent seven years building the temple to God, the Solomonic temple, which was the greatest temple to God ever built, ever, before and since. And, and, and not only that, he spent seven years doing that. Most people don't know, he spent, get this, 13 years building his own house. You can imagine what that was like. And then not only that, but he designed and he built eight full cities. We often give you know credit to Donald Trump and his prime, you know, when he was he was building casinos and office buildings, but but he was a nobody compared to Solomon. Not only those kinds of achievements, but he became an encyclopedic expert on trees and on birds and on fish and on dozens of other subjects. He was the number one authority in all of the world. He was a composer. He wrote a thousand songs. And he said, you know what? After all those achievements, it, 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 it kind of left me just empty. It was like chasing after the wind. And then in his grand life experiment, he went to possessions. Oh, that's the way to to really feel satisfied if you can just get enough possessions. And so he had the largest fleet of ships that ever existed. Um, We go down to Naples, Florida every year, at least we have for the last few years, to the Family Life uh, Speaker uh, retreat down there. And one of the things they have in Naples, Florida, I'm telling you, they have some yachts down there. And there's something to see, kind of drive around, look at some of these things. Well, he had more yachts than anybody in the world, or we could put it this way. He had a whole fleet of 757 airplanes that he could take to go anywhere he wanted to do. His possessions included 12,000 horses. I can't imagine cleaning out the stalls of 12,000 horses. But in, in, in his day, that was, it was horses. In our day, it would be cars. Can you imagine someone who has 12? thousand cars, and they would be the most expensive, the most luxurious cars. He collected jewels from around the world. He collected gold treasure. And it says in First Kings uh, chapter 10 that silver was as common as stones in Israel in Solomon's day. Now, if you ever go to Israel, you'll understand why they stoned people because there's just stones everywhere. And they're saying, that's what silver was like. It was everywhere. That's how many possessions he had. And then he decided, well, wait a minute, maybe that's not where it's found. Maybe it's found in sexual pleasure. And so he had, and it always blows my mind to hear this, he had 700 wives, and he had 300 concubines. And you say, what's a concubine? It's friends with benefits. He had 1,000, and they were the cream of the cream of the cream. And then then he said, well, what about fame and notoriety if you can just become well-known? Now, remember, they lived in the time when there was no radio, there was no television, there was no internet. It took time to go around the world, and he became known all around the world. In fact, the queen of Sheba, who herself had worldwide acclaim, said, I gotta go check this dude out. And so she gets this large entourage together. And she brings this just a whole slew, shipfuls of gifts to him. You know, one of the gifts that she gave to Solomon when she came. Check this one out. See if you've ever given a gift like this. Four tons of gold. I need to impress the guy, you know. So she brings four tons. Hey, hey, let's go over to 1 Kings chapter 10. I want you to see this in detail. Turn over to 1 Kings chapter 10. If you get to 1 and 2 Samuel, next is 1 and 2 Kings, and 1 and 2 Chronicles, it means you need to go back to the left. But 1 Kings chapter 10, I want you to to see her response to all of this. In verse 1 of chapter 10, it says she'd heard about the fame of Solomon. Now think about the miracle that is with no internet, no TV, no radio, no nothing. And she was a big-timer herself. And so she comes to check out the situation. And she came to Jerusalem with a very large, verse 2 of chapter 10, retinue, with camels carrying spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she spoke with him about all that was in her heart. And Solomon answered all her questions, and nothing was hidden from the king, which he did not explain to her. Notice verse 4. When the queen of Sheba perceived all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he'd built, the food of his table, the seating of his servants, the parties that he was carrying on, the attendance of his waiters, their attire, the cupbearers, the stairway by which you went up to the house of the Lord. There was no more spirit left in her. It just blew her off the map. She didn't really even know what to say. Verse 6, and then she said to the king, it was a true report which I heard in my own land about your words and your wisdom. Nevertheless, I didn't believe it until I came and my eyes had seen it, and behold, the half was not told. It was more than double what I heard. I mean, you want to talk about having notoriety and accomplishments and everything else. But he says, at the end of this grand life experiment, it it frankly left me empty. It's kind of like chasing after the wind. What can satisfy a human's heart and soul? What can meet our deepest need? Hey, we got people all around us and at times we fall into the trap too. They're pursuing pleasure, achievement, possessions, sexual pleasure, fame and notoriety. And Solomon has a message for them and for us. He says, if you're looking to find satisfaction, don't go that way. It will just leave you empty at the end. You know, it really moves me, it hurts my heart to think about how sad and jarring it is when you see people struggling with spiritual emptiness, sometimes even despairing of life. I want to read to you a a real-life suicide note. To anyone in the world who cares, who am I? Why am I living Life has become stupid and purposeless. Nothing makes sense anymore. The questions I had when I came to college are still unanswered, and now I am convinced there are no answers. There can only be pain and guilt and despair here in this world. My fear of death and the unknown is far less terrifying than the prospect of the unbearable frustration, futility, and hopelessness of continued existence." Man, sad when someone feels that way. And at the very end of the book of Ecclesiastes, which is what this is all from, in the last two verses, Solomon shares the secret. And he says, the secret is not a what. It's a who. The secret is the living God. Now back to... Matthew chapter 6, or rather John chapter 6. Jesus elaborates. He elaborates. Notice in, in chapter 6, and verse 33, he says, For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven, and here comes a key phrase, gives life to the world. Verse 35 again, Jesus said to them, Ego A me, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. We don't really see it so much in the English translation here, but these phrases in the original are very strongly worded. He who comes to me will not hunger. We could translate it, will absolutely never, ever hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. We could translate it, will absolutely never, ever Thirst, very strong statements that he makes. And obviously, he's talking about spiritual satisfaction. He's talking about finding the real meaning of life. Men and women, do we realize that our deepest and greatest need is spiritual? We were created with hungry souls. And Jesus steps up and he says, I am the bread of life. Jesus is the one who satisfies. We also know from this statement is that Jesus is the one who sustains. That's what bread was in the ancient world. It was the daily sustenance that was needed. And he says, I am the bread of life. I am the one who sustains you. No matter what we may face. Talked about Michael and Joy Bendrick. With Joy being in the hospital up there at Baptist and being first on the list for a liver transplant as her liver is failing and she's in a very weak state. And they are awaiting a liver transplant. Just up talking with them earlier in the week. And I will have you know that they would say that if God provides a liver for a transplant, that as they go through that whole process, Jesus is the one who will be sustaining them. And they would also honestly tell you that if the door is not open for a transplant and Joy goes home to be with Jesus, he will still be the one who is sustaining them through that process. Jesus is the one who sustains. How does he do that? He sustains us through his word, through the Bible, through the body of truth that we have. Jesus said this himself, Matthew 4.4, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. It's through the truth of God that we find sustenance. I love this verse from Jeremiah chapter 15 in verse 16. Jeremiah says to God this, Your words are what sustain me. They bring me great joy and are my heart's delight, for I bear your name, O Lord God Almighty. Your words are what sustain me. That's why we teach the Bible on Sunday mornings. That's why we've always done it, why we're going to continue to do it, because that's what sustains us. But here's another question. Who is it that is sustained? That's very important. Everybody? Well, notice again verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. So one thing, if we want to be sustained, is we need to come to him. Verse 40. Everyone who beholds the Son who sees Jesus for who he really is, the living God who came to this planet with the purpose to come and die for our failures, our rebellion, my failure, my rebellion, and then was gloriously resurrected from the dead. The one who's sustained comes to him, beholds him, see him for who he really is, and then it's mentioned twice in verse 35 and also in verse 40. He who comes to me, And he who believes in me, verse 40, everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. No problem is too large when Jesus is in charge, and no problem is too large when our eternity is secure. And we were created as eternal beings. That's what some people miss. And Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the one who satisfies. Jesus is the one who sustains. And he says, if you want to experience that, what we must do is we must come to him. We must behold him. We must believe in him. Talk about belief and you talk about faith and so many people are confused. What does that really mean? Well, ultimately it means to rest all of our hope on Jesus. Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher from across the Atlantic, put it this way. Love this quote. He says, Faith is not a blind thing, for faith begins with knowledge. It is not a speculative thing, for faith believes facts of which it is sure. It is not an impractical, dreamy thing, For faith trusts and stakes its destiny upon the truth of revelation. Faith, he concludes, is believing that Christ is what he is said to be and that he will do what he has promised to do and expecting this of him. He said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me, who beholds me and believes in me will experience that. You know, our our need for the bread of life and the truth of the bread of life, I think, was very well captured by Augustine centuries ago when he said this to God, you made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is Jehovah. Jesus is I am. And he fills in the blank for us. He says, ego, a me. I am the bread of life, the one who satisfies a hungry soul. Clara Williams is a woman who lived in the 19th century, and a friend came to her one day and said, I'm putting together a book of poetry I'd like you to write a poem that could go into that book. And this is what she wrote. All my life I had a longing for a drink from some clear spring that I hoped would quench the burning of the thirst I felt within. Hallelujah, I have found him whom my soul so long has craved. Jesus satisfies my longings through his blood I now and saved. One thing we have to say about the bread of life is this. God will never force feed us the bread of life. We must come to him. We must behold who he is. We must believe in him. I want to close with these words from Isaiah chapter 55, verses 1 to 3. Come all who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come by and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money, without cost. This is the amazing truth. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good. I love this next phrase. And your soul will delight in the richest fare. Give ear, come to me, that your soul may live. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you again for your book. We thank you for the truth that this is a living book. We thank you for our Savior. We thank you for Jesus who came to this world to be the bread of life that we need to satisfy us and to sustain us. We pray that everyone who hears the words of this message would be someone who chooses to come to him, understand who he is, and to count everything in their trust of him so that they could know the bread of life. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.